0: Welcome to Tech Talk Online, sponsored by Stratford University. You can listen to Tech Talk Live Saturday mornings from 9 till 10. Find us online at federalnewsnetwork.com or hear us on the radio in the Washington, D.C. area on the following frequencies, 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD 2 and 1039 FM HD 2. We thank you for listening to Tech Talk Radio.
1: Interfacing complete. Please stand by. Now downloading Tech Talk Radio with Dr. Richard Shirts and Jim Russ. Tech Talk Radio, it's technology you can understand. And now, here are Dr. Richard Shirts and Jim Russ.
2: Welcome to Tech Talk Radio. We are in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. I'm Dr. Richard Shirts, And I'm Jim Russ. And lots of things going on, as always. Tim Berners-Lee, who, of course, the father of the World Wide Web, he invented the browser, is trying to fix the Internet. It's broken. It's broken. I didn't realize that. It's broken because people don't own their data, and they've become products. And he said we need to reconfigure how data is stored so people can get back ownership of their own information. Google uh, traffic was uh, for a short time routed through China and Russia. This just shows you how uh, vulnerable the Internet architecture is. I'll talk about how that was done. And the innovation of the week there's an artificial intelligence anchor that's reading the news in China. I saw this. And this guy looks pretty good. (laughs) And so there may be some newscasters that are going to be out of business. I was looking, was, you know, he'll, he'll either do it in Chinese or English, which, which, whichever uh, language you select. And this is going to, I think, affect television going forward quite significantly. Three senators have accused the carriers of throttling your bandwidth without telling you. I mean, I've always suspected they do that, and so we'll find out what the facts are there. This week we're going to feature the man who invented the CAPTCHA. That's that little squiggly image that you have to interpret in order to log in. Uh-huh. And then he founded ReCAPTCHA and Duolingo. <laughs> and I'm going to explain how clever those two, uh, those two uh, companies are. Oh. Uh, his name is Luis Von Ahn. And, of course, it was a huge, huge mailbag. There's a letter in your mailbox. Oh, yeah, we got an email from Brian in Kansas. Dear Doc, can I zip my pictures or MP3 files to save space? Love the podcast. Thanks, Brian in Kansas. Well, Brian, zip is a very popular compression algorithm. It was created by Philip Katz. It's supported by many popular programs such as WinZip or 7-Zip as well as recent versions of Microsoft Windows. Zipping a file or a set of files can often reduce their size significantly uh, and then all you have to do is the only cost is you then have to use processing time to unzip them before they can be used. Now the concept of compression is fairly simple. Uh, the idea is that is that you uh, you... The the idea is that you take information which is stored on the disk, which is actually in a non-optimal format, non-optimal storage layout, and you simply convert it, which is optimized for a better storage system. For instance, uh, I mean, one simple, I'll just give you one simple example how compression might work. They call it one run length encoding. For instance, you might have a file that's got a string of asterisks, maybe 20 asterisks. 20 asterisks uh, all in a row, and, and that would be in the file. Well, you could replace that string of 20 by simply saying a symbol. You could use a symbol that says uh, there, uh, there are 20 asterisks, and you just put the number 20, and then you put the asterisk, and and if you have a special symbol in front of it, the c- computer will interpret that as the string. But in order to store the reference to that string, it, it's much smaller, and so you can actually reduce the size of, of the file doing something that simple, run length encoding. There are many other compression techniques. Now, the most, the, most of the ways that compressed data, in most cases, compressing a file will make the file smaller. However, if files are already compressed frequently, compressing them again will make them bigger. Now, it turns out, unfortunately for you, that MP3 files are already compressed. That's an audio compression format. As well as pictures like JPEGs are already compressed. So if you compress a JPEG or an MP3 file with ZIP, it will probably be larger. So it's not really going to help you much at all. But if you compress, say, a regular document like a Word document, you'll get a pretty significant compression. We got an email from Joseph in Baltimore. Dear Tech Talk, I've got a Nikon DLSR and need to replace the batteries. They're expensive, these Nikon batteries. Is it safe to buy these cheaper off-brand camera batteries that I see on the Internet? Enjoy the podcast, Mm -hmm. Joseph in Baltimore. Well, Joseph, I'll tell you, batteries can be dangerous if they're not well-made. So you've got to be careful when you buy them. A bad battery could definitely damage your camera. Catch fire. Yeah, you've heard of these lithium batteries exploding or catching fire. Now, the battery that came with your cameras, camera is called a first-party battery because it's made by the manufacturer of your camera, Nikon, or at least by a licensee under their strict supervision. It's the battery your camera was designed to work with, and they tend to be expensive because Nikon really marks them up. As all the, it's a way that they can make additional money. Now, third-party batteries are made by a company other, other than your... Camera manufacturer, and some of them could be high quality. If you get a re- reputable battery maker, they'll they'll still make the same high quality battery. They'll just have less of a markup, so they can undercut Nikon and sell it to you. But then you've also got these cheap Chinese knockoffs, where they actually they actually <laughs> manufacture them in factories where they don't have good safety standards. They redesign them, and you may be getting a lower quality battery as well as a lower price battery, perhaps a dangerous battery. Hmm. Now, with a first-party battery, you always know what you're going to get. Third-party batteries, you're never quite certain. Third-party batteries are always cheaper, but you don't really know what you're going to get. So you've got to be careful. Now, Amazon has got a lot of scams. I'm telling you, you you go online on Amazon, you know, they say, Fulfilled by Amazon sellers. Amazon doesn't check what their sellers do. A lot of times, a seller might even say that they're they're selling a Nikon battery and it's a fake Nikon battery, mm-hmm. and, and, and Amazon doesn't check on that. So if I were going to buy batteries for the camera, I'd go to a, uh, a website that, 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 you know, that concentrates on photos and cameras, like, like the B&H Photo Shop, B&H Photo Store. They're, they're not going to sell you something that, that is, uh, that's low quality because then want you to come back to them to them for camera supplies. Or you might go to a camera store to get your battery. I probably would not get it from Amazon. And I'm telling you, I would still stick with per- first party batteries if I've got a if I've got my Nikon camera. Now maybe I'd put a cheaper battery in the in the T V remote. Mm-hmm. But but for the
1: For something expensive like for that. For something
2: like that, I'm gonna go with a top tier battery. Sure. We got an email from Dwayne in New York. Dear Doc and Jim, I'm thinking of getting a three D printer, uh you know. What do I need and how does it work? Are they very expensive? <laughs> Well, well, they they <laughs> they pretty they, broad. they can be expensive. Now, here, this is how they work. Picture a robot controlled glue gun. Yep. That uses plastic instead of glue. Yep. And you've got a basic 3D printer and you basically move that glue gun around and you just build up some 3D item a layer at a time. Strands of plastic are fed into the print head, which is heated up to melt the material. The print head moves around precisely in three dimensions and puts drops of plastic onto the print bed, and it builds up your 3D object. Now, every object starts out as a 3D model. Now, these are usually made on a CAD program that that's designed to you know design 3D models. Sometimes they'll they'll do laser scanners to get the initial input. There are programs like Tinkercad, Fusion 360, or Sketchup. Those are all uh, 3D 3D um, uh, print models that you can get. Then this, but the uh, but the printer doesn't understand a 3D print model because it, it prints it a layer at a time. So then what you have to do is you have to then slice that 3D model into layers. Huh. And so then there's a and so you have to and so then you're laying down a layer at a time as you do the slicing. And so there's a program like Craftware or Astroprint that will take your 3D image and slice it down. And the slices are what the 3D printer understands. It does one slice at a time. Now, the slices. So then,
1: how do you put it? Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah? How do you put it back together then?
2: What do you mean? No, 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 no! You, no, you. Sl- the image is sliced, not the object. Oh,
1: the, the, oh, so the so the the machine is actually slicing the image. It's yes, a, yes. It, the co-
2: computer slices the image and then it lays it down one okay, slice at a I got time. It.
1: So you get the finished product. At,
2: That's right. No now, assembly required. Now the now the other thing: these slicing um, uh, um, programs also add in extra supports because sometimes you're adding a piece of a three dimensional object and it's supported from above so you don't have anything to hold it up yet and so it will put in little support fingers to hold that up so the drop doesn't fall down until it gets support from above and then you remove those support fingers after it's built and the slicing program does that automatically interesting now you can you know most the main problem with 3D printers is speed it takes That's several so. hours if not days for printing it we got some 3D 3D printers at Stratford, you know and we do them in plastic and yet and those things are running like eight hours or 24 hours to do something. And then if there's any wind or breeze in the room, uh, or if there's any vibration, they get they, 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 they're, they're not precise copies of what we're trying to build. Mm-hmm. So we've got to basically put them in a room, put them in a plastic box so that there's no wind and give them thermal isolation as well as as well as vibration isolation so that we can get these things. And depending on what you want to put down, you can get one for the home for like a few hundred dollars, which mm-hmm. would be pretty good for just doing things in plastic. But these things go up all these things up to prices of tens of thousands of dollars.
1: So, and you, but you could use other medium besides plastic. In I mean, it would have to be the precise printer for that. I mean, you just That's could, right. could put lead or something in in any old.
2: No, so but you but they are but there there are ones that that will lay down metal. Uh huh. And then it will lay down basically uh, small uh, metal uh, powder, and then it will melt the metal with a laser and build it up a, a layer at a wow. time. They also have that for titanium. So there are, there are different printers. You can, you can lay down metal. You can lay down plastic. You can lay down it. They even have one that lays down meat. What? So you can, you can meat? S- meat. <laughs> I mean, and they, they, they also have them that lay down, uh, you know, What would you build icing? out of meat? Well they they they're using them in the in kitchens to make some very exotic foods oh to
1: make it look pretty
2: to make it look pretty yeah but but and so they so they you 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 could have a cake you know you could have icing put on with with a 3D printer i mean you could you could do all I could c- see that so there are th- these are also used in the kitchen uh, experimentally.
1: So let me ask you a question. Suppose you have a project, and it's like a one-time thing. You don't want to go buy a printer. Is there some place where you can go and have them print something out for you?
2: There are online you, There are online uh, 3D print uh, companies. Interesting. And basically, you go online and you get it, and you upload the printer file, the 3D printer file to them. They'll print it and send it back to you. No kidding. So if you've got one item... Don't buy a printer, get it done online. Interesting. And and it's really not that bad, not that, you know, cuz you upload it to it's all automated. Uh-huh. You you upload the file in the format that they want and it's just sent to the computer and it just and it just does a 3D print it comes out and they put it in the box and ship it to you so wow. they, there's almost no labor interesting so uh, that's what I, so if you only have one do it that do way do it that way do got it, it do it that way we got an email from Richard in Madison Wisconsin dear doc and jim i love my android phone however i've heard that it's not as secure as the iphone how can i make my android phone as secure as possible rich in madison well here's a couple of things that you can do to make it more secure uh, first of all, since it's all based on your Google account, you want to set up two factor authentication for your Google account. That's going to protect you a lot. So you go into your Google, go, you go into your Gmail account, and you set up My Account, then go to two step verification and set that up. That's number one. The second thing you want to do is you know, enable your lock screen so that people just can't get into your phone. The third thing you want to do is activate Find My Phone so in case you have it stolen, you can locate it, and then you can wipe anything that's on the phone in the event it has been stolen. And then the most important thing, and this is the thing that I've got to stress, disable unknown sources in developer mode. The one thing that Android does, it lets you install applications that have not been vetted by Google, that are not in the Google Play Store. And these applications that have not been vetted by Google are the ones that really have uh, malware built into them. And those are the ones that you've got to be careful of. So I would just disable that. So you want to go to – what you want to do is go to your Android phone, go to Settings, and then Security, and then Unknown Sources, and then uncheck that, which means you will not allow Unknown Sources for anything which is installed and the second thing you want to do is disable your developer options, which bypasses a lot of the security protection. So you, in that case, you go to Settings, go to Developer Options, and then you just slide the toggle off. If you do that, and that, this last, these last two things are probably the most important, at least you'll have software that's been vetted by Google. Best of luck keeping your Android phone safe yes. and sound. We got an email from Dave in Elkridge. Hello, Doc and Jim. I'd like to set our Android uh, and, and iOS phones so that they only connect to the Wi-Fi network and never to public Wi-Fi, whether in restaurants or airports or wherever. We got ten gigabits per month in the family plan; we never use it up. And I just as soon use a cellular, cellular cellular connection at all times when I'm, except when I'm at home, just to be safe.
1: Is it truly safer? What cellular? Oh yeah, yeah. it is. Okay. Yeah, it's
2: it's fully encrypted. Cellular is much. Yeah, cellular is really. Really secure I don't Four. think,
1: I just have this, I just feel like nothing's safe anymore.
2: Well, cellular is much safer than a public Wi Fi.
1: Well, I know public Wi Fi <laughs> is not. I would never use that.
2: So here's here's what you, but the thing is, if you you don't want your phone to automatically jump on and then log in on, to a public Wi Fi. So this is what you want to do. You go to the, all your phones, and, and if you've ever logged on to one of these networks, these public networks, it's going to just log on automatically again. So, first of all, you want to go through uh, all of the networks that are on your phone and tell your phone to forget all the networks that you don't that you don't ever want to get back on. You it'll forget the password, it'll forget all the uh, authentication and it won't log back on. Then what you want to do, you want to turn off Wi-Fi notification when Wi-Fi signal is detected. Then that way you walk into Starbucks, it's not going to pop up and say, "Hey, do you want to you want to log in?" So it just it just won't bother you. If you do these two things, it works like a charm. Now, if you have a Sprint phone, you've got to turn off the Sprint Connection Optimizer, which means it hooks you up, to, it'll attach you to anything that it can find. So, mm-hmm. so if you do these two things, uh, these you'll be fine, and you're just not going to be bothered at all. I tend not, not to get on public Wi-Fi, too, for the same reason. And if I have to get on it because I'm traveling, I set up my, of course, I set up my VPN first. And if you if you go to public Wi-Fi through a VPN, you are really quite, quite secure. Good. Uh, let's see here. Okay, this should be uh oh this oh yeah. Doc. This is this is from uh yeah, we got an email here from Ansel Adams, yeah. the photographer. Amazing, from the grave. From the grave. Uh-huh. <laughs> he said, Yeah, I forgot to put the introduction on That's that. Okay. Doc, I was assigned a new office computer last week. In and heaven. It, and it came with Windows ten. I hate it. One of my biggest complaints is that the pictures in the picture folder, instead of showing up the picture, I see this generic blue and white tile with a mountain on it. That's sort of the generic icon yeah. in Windows. Uh, how do I fix this? Thanks. Ansel Adams. I'll tell you, Ansel Adams came back from the dead. He really his...
1: must be ticked off about this, if he, you know.
2: He must be. Well, everything, all of, the, all of the attributes of your folders are controlled by the File Explorer, some people call those the Windows Explorer, and there are two things you've got to adjust. First of all, you, you've got to adjust the icon size because of the icon sizes. If you've selected a really small icon size, no matter what you do, you won't get a thumbnail. So you mm-hmm. have to have a, a big enough icon size. Secondly, you have to tell that subdirectory to display the thumbnail rather than the the icon, and so those the two things have to be set. So first of all, let's set the um, Let's set, uh, Let's enable thumbnails. So in that case, you want to open up the File Explorer, and right along the top you'll see File and View and these other menu options. Click on File, and then you'll see something that says Change Folder and Search Options. Click on that, and then that'll bring up a window. Then you select the View tab, and then under the Advanced Settings, there will be a whole bunch of check marks, and the first item in that list of check marks is called Always Show Icons, Never Thumbnails. So probably that is checked as oh, we thing always that So uncheck that, okay, and then you'll be able to uh, th- that will enable thumbnails rather than the icon. Beautiful. Now you have a choice of doing it just for the highlighted subdirectory, or you could you could you could uh, you can enable it for all subdirectories, mm-hmm. which which is what I probably do. That's
1: what I think. That's what Ansel would want to do. And
2: I think he'd want it all subdirectories, and that and then what you do, you go now. You want to check on the icon size. Now maybe the icon size is going to depend on what subdirectory you're in. So you highlight the subdirectory you're looking at, then again you open up the file explorer and along the top the, where we saw file, the right beside it is view. Click on, click on, um, uh, uh, you know, click on the, um, uh, click on the view tab, and then under that, once you click on the view tab, you're going to see the different icons: extra large, large, medium icon tiles or content. Those five will all We'll all give you the. Uh, we'll all give you the uh, thumbnail. If you have a smaller one than what any of those, it won't show you the right. thumbnail. And so, click one of those. I I tend to use the um, where my images. I put the large icon because you can actually see enough. Right. And then and then once you if you've got both of those things taken care of, then you hit apply. You can apply it either to this subdirectory or, or to all subdirectories. And after that, you're. Icons are going to show up automatically.
1: Windows ten is really driving me nuts. I mean, it's driving Ansel nuts. I it's, mean, there's a lot of things that he doesn't like about it. Yeah, I it's, know. It's, it's hard to get the, the, the transparent frame around your windows and uh, the fonts. I don't
2: know. Just, Everything is configurable, and if you have somebody who, if you have, if someone else has installed it on your computer. And made a bunch of arbitrary choices for configuration. You're, you have to go in and fix them all individually.
1: From what Ansel told me, <laughs> somebody <laughs> installed the computer for him, and it was—it's probably just the factory default settings. on Yeah, there, so. that's
2: that's right. So I, I'm. But always, not
1: having seen Ansel's computer, I can't tell you. But for actually,
2: sure. when you get a new computer, it, it opens up and you are asked a series of questions to do the configuration, and so. I never let my IT department configure my computer. Yeah, well. I do that. So Ansel's just going to have to get a better relationship with his IT department. It's
1: odd. (laughs) Ansel really does have and he takes care of the IT (laughs) people because he knows just how important they are. But
2: still, they walk out
1: and they scratch their heads and they go back. But he's still
2: talking about them on the air. (laughs)
1: No, he's ch- being channeled through me, I think yeah, what's Exactly. Yes.
2: Listen, we love your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu, and we'll get back with you as soon as we can.
1: It's Saturday morning. You're listening to Tech Talk Radio, on heard on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD 2 and 1039 FM HD 2. Watch us do the show by downloading the Periscope app to your device and following us at WFED Tech Talk.
0: If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Shirts of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio.
2: Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We are in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. Now it is time for
0: Profiles in
3: IT.
2: Yes, today we're going to feature Luis von on He was a computer, he is a computer scientist, best known as inventor of the Recaptcha, as well as the creator of games with a purpose, he also was founder of Recaptcha and Duolingo. Duolingo. I'll explain Duolingo. all. Uh, yeah, I'll explain all those in a minute. Now, Vonan was born August nineteenth, nineteen seventy-eight, in Guatemala City. When he was eight years old, his mom bought him his first uh, computer, a Commodore sixty-four. And he started playing around with it. And uh, he started really getting interested in um, coding when he discovered that he could pirate games if he could break their pirated uh, copyright protection. Hmm. So he became the source of all pirated games in the Commodore 64 community within <laughs> Guatemala City when he was eight to 10 years old. That was, you know, I saw him. T- he-, he talked about this on a YouTube. Uh, in a YouTube presentation, he says, Now, you know, Statue of Limitations is gone, so we can talk about it. But he's, he's moved on from that. He's moved on to bigger and better things. In 2000, he received a Bachelor of Science in Mathematics from Duke University. Uh, he did, uh, and then as a, he started doing research on stenography. This is where you hide images in, uh, you hide information in images where you could have an image, and it just looks like the image of a cow, but you have encoded a message in there, and then you just send somebody the picture, and somebody looks at it, tells us it's just a picture of a cow, but then you can look at the image, and slight variations in, say, uh, amplitude or color can then pull out an encoded image, which is an encoded message, which is hidden in the image. The
1: cow is a carrier for an image.
2: That's right. The cow is a carrier for the image. That's called stenography, and he... He and, uh, and a couple of, uh, of his uh, of his coworkers proved that private key public private key stenography was possible. So that's when he got used to he got interested in studying images and putting noise in images and figured out how the computer can analyze images. And that gave him an idea for the CAPTCHA. Ah, see that's how that's how he got his first idea for the CAPTCHA. Now, now see the CAPTCHA is really a way so the computer can tell that it is a person who is logging on. And so you try to log on, and there was a problem in that there were people were writing these bots that would log on and just do stuff. Um, and, and you didn't know if it was a bot or a person. So now what happens? You try to create an account or do something that they want to be certain that there's a person behind the keyboard. They'll put up this image. This was all these squiggly letters and distorted with noise in it. And it turns out that these images are very, very hard, if not next to impossible, for a computer to analyze. Hmm. But people can look at it, since they do pattern pro- pattern processing so easily, people look at it, and it's a piece of cake just to see the image. And so he created these captures, something that humans easily do, but computers can't do. And... Uh, and that was, uh, that was really a masterful idea. Now, at that time, he was kind of young. He didn't actually have an idea of making money on this stuff. So he gave the CAPTCHA technology to Yahoo because he just wanted to have it used in the world. And he became very, very you know proud of the fact that there were so many CAPTCHAs being used worldwide, and he invented them. In 2005, he received his Ph.D. in computer science from Carnegie Mellon University. Now, his thesis was on human computation. This is where you could use the brain power of computers combined with the brain power of many many users combined with computers to solve problems that neither the human could solve or the computer could solve. They call that human computation. I'll give you some examples of that. So, as part of his dissertation, he came up with something called Games with a purpose, which are played by humans, and they produce a useful side effect. So, for instance, there was a problem uh, with on the internet where they, they had trouble uh, tagging pictures because if, if you want to have a say, if you want to have a, a picture, say there's a man in it, there's a dog in it, there's a tree in it, and you and you want to you want to tag it with items, it's very hard for computers to do this. So he came up with games with a purpose. And they and they what they would do they would show an image there and there would be two randomly paired people and it was like a game. They called it ESP. And then you would look at the picture and you would try to write down what you think the other person is going to be writing. <laughs> so you look at it and and maybe if it's and maybe there might be two words of two two things that they already know the picture has say like dog and hat. So you would not be allowed to say dog or hat. You have to say something else. And that way it lets them get so then you write so then you write down and then you you guess a word through this ESP. And finally if both of you guess the same word, you win. Boom, you win. You win points. And then uh and then it's crowdsourced in that if maybe Twenty different pairs of people pick that same new word, then it's validated and then it's used. And there's one of the words. So th- this turned out to be, um, you know, quite interesting because it was like an interesting game. So within four months, he had convinced thirteen thousand bored web cruisers into producing one point three million labels for for roughly three hundred thousand images. Wow. You see, so that, so you, you make it a game, and then people do it for free. Right. Just to play the game.
1: Ingenious.
2: Now, Google purchased this in 2005 because, of course, Google is trying to label all the images in their in their search engine, and they don't want to pay people to do it, so then they bought this game. See, at this time, he figured out that giving away the CAPTCHA was probably a bad idea. He probably could have sold the CAPTCHA. Yep. But this time, the ESP game, which was one of his games with the purpose, boom, he, um, he sold it to, to, um, to Google. Interesting. Now, he became a faculty member at, uh, at Carnegie Mellon uh, Com- School of Computer Science in 2006. And then he started thinking about He was so proud of his captchas. He said, in fact, there were 200 million captchas typed in every day around the world. And then he thought, if it takes 10 seconds per CAPTCHA, that means that every day 500,000 man-hours are wasted filling out CAPTCHAs. <laughs> so he went from thinking that he was a hero to thinking that he was a dodo, wasting all that time.
1: 500,000 man-hours a day.
2: Filling out CAPTCHAs. So he said, is there a way that we could use that 500,000 man-hours and do something productive? Hmm. So he invented recapture, Okay. So that when you're actually doing the capture, you're also doing something else that needs to be done. Okay? Okay. Explain. Now, now, this is what he did. At the time, people were trying to scan old books into, you know, in, you know, scan them into images and use optical character recognition to recognize them. And it turned out that if you go to some of these old books, some of this really dim text Poorly formed letters that the optical character recognition had about a 30% error rate when they would scan these things in. And so, if you'd want to actually scan all of these books in accurately and, and use humans to do it, it cost you millions and millions of dollars. So, we got this really clever idea. The caption now has two words one word is something from a book where they're trying to interpret it. The other word is the real CAPTCHA. Okay. And you have to write down what both words mean. Now, if you get the CAPTCHA word correct, they'll let you create your account. Okay. And then what they do is, but then if you get the CAPTCHA word correct, then they're going to assume that the other word, that they don't know what it is, is correct. And if they get 20 or 30 people to agree with you, on that other word, then they say okay, that's what that is and they put it in. So they're, they're so they're 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 letting people do this thing. So here's the thing. So Google this also aligned with exactly what Google wanted to do because they they were trying to I mean Google had this huge project. They were digitizing material for Google Books. They were, they were digitizing material for the New York Times Archive. They have a huge digitization project going on. So they bought it. They bought ReCAPTCHA. In 2012, ReCAPTCHA was translating 150 million words a day. Whew. Think about That's
1: that. That's
2: crazy. So, so it would be possible, you see, for them to actually finish the whole project and not pay a penny for the humans to do it. He's
1: pretty good at that.
2: Wasn't that clever? That's very clever. So whenever you see a captcha, now like this this recapture is being is used on hundreds of sites on the internet. So whenever you get a captcha, if there are two words on it, one of them you're using to help digitize a book and the other one is the real CAPTCHA.
1: So now instead of rolling your eyes and oh, I gotta do this, now you know that you're Doing something
2: good, and so now there's a, there's a funny thing that comes out. These words are sort of randomly selected. So now there are memes set up where somebody will get a randomly selected pair of words that's just r- ridiculous or uh-huh. or offensive because they just come up, and then they'll make a meme out of it. So there was this like there was a, a, a capture on a <laughs> on a Christian website. And, Where's the
1: dump button? I may need it.
2: No, I'm not going to say anything bad. And, and, it, and so <laughs> and, and so the one word was Christian, and then they put bad in front of it. So there was this Christian website, and the CAPTCHA was bad Christian. <laughs> so, and so there are memes out there with all sorts of hilarious word combinations, that, that, and so, and so there's, like their, their website's built up on it. Meat Sweater. Something That's right. crazy like that. That's right. And so people are having fun with it. So that was reCAPTCHA, which was extremely interesting. Then he, uh, he got another idea. Okay, so this was translating books. He said this was actually just you know ca- optical character, character recognition on books. But he said, you know, there is a, a desire to have the Internet translated into all, all languages. Mm-hmm. So uh, like if you would if, – if uh, like Wikipedia is so huge. If you would translate it into all languages, you, you might have to pay somebody $50 million, $100 million in time to do this translation. So he said, I wonder – if I could create a game with a purpose where we could get the entire Internet translated to other languages, to all other languages. Wow. This was his goal. So he created Duolingo, which was a language education platform. Now the, now the problem is, here was the problem when, when he first started this. There are not that many people that know two languages. So in order to do it initially, you have to be bilingual, And there were not enough people who were bilingual in the world. And so he wanted to get a million or two million people doing this to to translate the, the web. And there weren't enough bilingual people. But there are a lot of people that want to learn another language. So he said, why don't I set up a site where you can learn another language? And then in the process of learning another language, you will, of course, be translating sentences and words from that other language okay that's that's the that's the the, the nub of it so he created duolingo and uh and so you go in there and 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 volunteers just and he made it a game i I downloaded it on my phone it's on my iphone here it's just a lot of fun i'm huh. i've been playing around with it they said if you if you work on duolingo for 37 hours that's equivalent to taking one semester course in, in a language wow and it's it's basically free. And as you get more advanced in the language, they'll give you more complicated sentences. And what they have and then what they'll do is these more complicated sentences are coming from the web that they want to have translated. So then as people are learning the language, they start translating it. Now what he does is that he will crowdsource it and he might take the uh, the translation of say 30, 40 people that are learning the language. And, and when they crowdsource it across 30 or 40 people, the translation that they get is as good as you get from a professional translator. Hmm. And it costs them nothing. Wow. Okay? Duolingo. And the other thing that he wanted to do, he, he, he had a mission to, to, to teach people new languages. He said the problem with language programs like, um, you know, Rosetta Stone, it costs $500. And so he said that's great for the rich countries, but he says poor countries like Guatemala cannot afford that. So he wanted to have language courses that were available for free. So what they're doing with Duolingo is they're basically translating documents for companies, and companies pay them to do these translations. And so that's, that's a significant part of their revenue stream. And the people learning the language are doing the translation, and then, they, and then they also have some ad, ads that you can take, uh, that, that you can watch, and that also helps with it. Or you can pay a small amount of money and not have ads. But this is actually a lot of fun, this Duolingo. I'll probably continue doing that. So, And about 80% of the traffic comes, comes from the Internet now. Now, he's planning. He, hasn't, he didn't sell Duolingo. He's CEO now. In 2014, he assumed the role of CEO. He is preparing an IPO. In 2020, so he's mm. gonna, he's going to go public with this. He's already raised 108 million dollars, and this he believes is going to be making uh, learning a language like a game. You don't even know you're studying, and it's just fun. So he's developed, I think, a clever way to teach and a clever way to monetize it by using the people that are learning doing the translating. So there you go. Everything you want to know about Lewis luis von Ahn, who is an expert in crowdsourcing games with a purpose hope you were paying
1: attention because knowledge we just provided to you will help you win something to put in your face in other words lunch so stand by for the pop quiz here on tech talk radio heard on federal news radio part of the federal news network 1500 am 1035 fmht2 1039 fmht2 watch us do the show by downloading the periscope app to your device and following us at WFED tech talk
3: featuring Mr. Big Voice, with musical guest, the Stratford University Junkyard Band, and your host, Dr. Richard Schertz.
2: Yes, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All, Please sit down. Please th- sit Yeah, yes. I think
1: they've, they're they blinded by that turkey you have cooking in the know. Stratford University kitchen. No,
2: I, I want to tell you, see, you know, we just talked about games with a purpose. Well, this is radio with a purpose.
1: It's not radio. It's a classroom of the airwaves.
2: That is the purpose. <laughs> radio, and the purpose is to be classroom of the airwaves. So we are radio with a the purpose. There you go. Not simply a game with a purpose. And yes. of course... We want to test whether you have been doing your job by listening to what we've been talking about on the show, and we're going to do that with a pop quiz. If you get the right answer to the pop quiz, you'll get tickets to fine dining at one of our dining rooms, and we're finding a new way to send this out to you guys. Oh, really? Yeah, we're sending, we're getting getting tickets set up, and there was apparently a problem with some of the tickets, we're going back, and... Sending tickets back to some of the prior week's oh, winners.
1: Okay, all right, good.
2: So earlier in the show, I was talking about Luis von He, of course, is the inventor of the CAPTCHA and founder of Recaptcha and founder of Duolingo. What was the purpose of Recaptcha? Recaptcha. If you know the
3: answer to today's wow. question, well, now is your chance to turn that knowledge into lunch. The next step is to pick up your phone and call us now. If you're dialing from west of the Rockies. It's 877-936-9333. If you're calling from east of Playa del Shirts, Virginia, it's 877-936-9333. If you're trying to capture your Thanksgiving <laughs> Get turkey Yeah. <laughs> Why don't you try the wildcard line? 877-936-9333. And of course, our Thanksgiving turkey is the international line. 8779 3639 or 1-800-AUTO-PARTS. And now, once again,
2: here's Dr.
3: Richard Church.
2: And if you want to reach us from Guatemala City, yes. simply connect to the Skype. us on Skype. Connect to Tech Talk Radio 1 and your call will be forwarded to the studio free of charge.
3: Andrew Mitchell, our adjunct professor for prize distribution and crowd control, is standing by to take your call, so dial now. Hey, enough of that.
2: Okay, Tim Berners-Lee is trying to fix the web privacy. Of course, Tim Berners-Lee was the creator of the World Wide Web, father of the uh, the browser, and he's built a new product geared at returning the power of data back to the people. His new initiative, Inrupt, is aimed at decentralizing the web and rewriting the rules of online business with an open source project called Solid. Now, Solid is an alternative to big tech data centers where they store all of your data and keep it secret. Maybe not so secret if they're hacked. And it would transfer it from these data centers into pods, which you control, not the company. Solid's pods are just one part of the Solid ecosystem, and then uh, these are all sort of independent data storage areas that are controlled by the user, and they are reached using a decentralized application tool called Inrupt. So when companies want to use your data which is stored in your pod, they use it through Inrupt and they can only get access to your data when you give them access. Now one of Ber- Tim Berners-Lee's ideas to build this ver- a new version of Amazon Alexa which he calls Charlie. Instead of Alexa, and so Tim Berners Lee for Tim Berners Lee, Charlie will provide all the benefits of Alexa, except users will remain in control of the data obtained by Charlie. So he's creating this as a proof of concept, and he hopes that these apps will shake up the power dynamics of the uh, of the web, and convince convince consumers that they need to pull their data away from these big tech companies and take control of it. He thinks. This is the only way to fix the web.
1: We do not have a correct answer yet, so if you would, Dr. Please, ask another question.
2: Earlier in the show, I talked about Luis Von On. Of course, he was founder of ReCAPTCHA. Now, ReCAPTCHA was a, a project that was designed to do something for the good of the universe as people were filling out the CAPTCHA. What were they trying to do with ReCAPTCHA that couldn't be done very easily otherwise.
1: And again, the uh, the number of calls is 877-936-9333. Carry on, Doc.
2: Internet traffic was routed through China, Russia, and Nigeria briefly on Monday, November 12th. Now, this outage put substantial amount of valuable Google traffic in the hands of Internet service providers in countries with a long history of of surveillance and spying and all sorts of bad activities now this incorrect routing instru- the incorrect routing instruction sent some tra- traffic to a russian network operator transtelecom as well as to china telecom as well as to a nigerian provider main one now, Google resolved the issue on Tuesday, and the company wrote in the cloud that they don't think anything was, uh, was caused, but it wasn't their fault. It was caused by some exter- external force to the company. Now, they also told the, the Wall Street Journal that it did not compromise any data. But the fact is, this incident underscores the inherent weakness of the Internet, that it's based on trust. And all these routing tables are, 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 are updated, and based on a trust relationship, and they weren't set up to be in this adversarial, adversarial relationship. So we, it, this indicates a weakness in the Internet that should be addressed.
1: All right. Still no uh, no uh, winner. Why don't you ask the question again? We'll go to break, okay. and we'll come back.
2: Early in the show, I talked about uh, Luis Van On, He, of course, invented reCAPTCHA. What was he using reCAPTCHA for in addition to just just the the normal CAPTCHA thing? But reCAPTCHA did something else that was very, very useful.
1: Okay. If you got the answer, give us the call, 877-936-9333. It's Saturday morning, and this is Tech Talk Radio on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD 2, and 1039 FM HD 2. Again, you can watch us do the show, download the Periscope app to your device, and follow us at WFED Tech Talk. Learn more about Stratford University by going to stratford.edu. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment.
0: If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Shirts of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio.
2: Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge of Stratford University talking technology. And do we have a winner over there yet? It looks
1: like we do have a winner. Let us go to, hang on, we have to We have to do this right. We have to do this right. right. We need to this play the, the proper music yes, here. Yes. There it is.
2: Oh yes. Oh yeah, there you go. There we Let's go. Let's go
1: to feels like a winter now. Yeah, Mike, it feels like winter too. Yes. Let's go to line three. I don't is Mike Mike, are you there? Hello Mike. Oops, wrong line. Let me do this. How about that? Mike, is that you? Yeah, it's me. Gotcha. Mike, have you ever called us before? How long time? Well, maybe a year ago. Okay, yeah, your name looked inf- unfamiliar, yeah. so I thought I'd give you a shot. Uh, Mike, you're calling us from Upper Marlboro. Dr. Schertz, please ask the question again.
2: Yes, uh, earlier in the show we talked about we talked about Luis Von An, who, of course, was the founder of Recapture. What was the sort of the larger purpose of Recapture? Yeah, to scan or document old books. That is correct. Much, yep, there you go.
1: Correct. Excellent job, Mike. Uh, hang on the phone a second here. Thank you very much for listening. We're going to send you back to Kevin Stanfield, who is uh, sitting in for uh, for Andrew today, and he'll take your information and send the uh, prize out to you. Thanks again for listening. Doc, if you would,
2: more oh, stuff. Oh, yes, cool. Let's talk about the innovation of the week, AI anchors, artificial intelligence anchors that are reading the news in China on television The state-run press agency in China, Xinhua... Is now delivering the news using AI anchors made of digital composites of real anchors and using synthesized voices to read the news. Does this
1: mean they'll be smarter than what we have now?
2: No, they're just they're, they <laughs> all they do they repeat whatever whatever text people oh, sends them. Well. now these anchors look realistic. Well, actually, but uh, many many anchors just just read the teleprompter. Exactly. So what's so the difference? We're just
1: saving money here.
2: So so they feed the text to the teleprompter, but then they have the digital thing just read it. Uh, Read it online. Now, these these actually look really real. They are digital composites of actual real anchors, and you look at them, and they're they're not bad. Now, they'll read any text that's fed to them.
1: That could be a problem. Yeah,
2: and, and they... <laughs> Please and, see
1: the Anchorman movie. So they,
2: they have an English-language uh, anchor and a Chinese-language anchor, and it was created by Xun, uh, Xinhua in, uh, in partnership with a local Beijing search company, Sogu. The anchors premiered at the World Internet Conference in China. Xinhua, a news agency, said that the AI anchor, this is what they love, can work twenty four hours a day <laughs> on its official website and it will and all the various social media platforms and it will reduce production cost. And they never yes. they, there are no breaks and no unions. And they never get sick. They never get they sick. They won't
1: walk off the set.
2: That's right and they don't they don't care what they're saying whether they don't have to agree with it it's just whatever the state wants them to say well they'll say. Xinhua did not divulge any additional information to the technology being used to create the AI anchors but the final product feels very much like the deep fake videos that have emerged in the west. Interesting. Now see deep fakes are essentially face, face swapped videos created by artificial intelligence. that scans hundreds of still frames from a video and then uses those analyzed frames to create new manipulated videos that look like the real thing. I mean, this year, Reddit, the site, sites like Reddit, were inundated with digitally altered videos uh, that looked like Hollywood stars doing adult film activities. And, and that's becoming and that's more and more of a problem. The U.S. Department of Defense is so concerned about people believing fake AI imagery... But it's already starting to combat it. Somebody put up a fake, uh, a deep, uh, you know, a, a uh, one of these altered images of Barack Obama, for instance, and it was pulled down. So th- this is actually becoming a problem yeah. because, it, because they look real. But these AI anchors are really quite interesting. If you, you can look them up on the web. It's kind of an interesting thing. Hmm. We... Uh, there's something interesting coming out here you know the metric system is going to change their base units again really see now you know now we're not we're not doing much of the metric in the US of course because we're in the English system yeah and um, oh my God, I got, and so big um, <laughs> problem over there I do yeah just a small Oh yeah, And so what we have here, officials with the General Con- uh, Conference of Weights and Measures have announced that the four base units of the metric system are going to be defined. Now, four of the base units, this is the ampere, the kilogram, the mole, and the kelvin. Currently, the kilogram is officially designed as the mass of a cylinder made of platinum iridium alloy that's housed in a bell jar in France. Wow. Now, this... Cylinder is removed from the prospect, from the, its protected spot every forty years to serve as a calibration tool for other weights. Now that seems a little bit, you know, antiquated, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it does. I mean, that's the official that's the official kilogram deal. Now, according to the fi- to the official, the days are numbered of this particular kilogram standard. This is because the sixty member nations that make up the body will be voting to change the system in which the kilogram will be defined indirectly using Planck's constant. Now, Planck's constant is what relates the frequency of light to its energy. Okay. Okay. Those physicists, E equals H okay. nu.
1: Okay. Are we going to do string theory in the next hour? No, no. I'm just,
2: <laughs> I'm just saying that it's a, it's, it's a universal constant. Now, the German physicist Max Planck, you see... If <laughs> there you go. Here's the thing, Jim. If, if there's any chance I can throw a little physics into this show... You're going to do, do it. I'm going to do it.
1: So you know, the center beater will now be replaced by the shirts. That's right.
2: So the German physicist Max Planck introduced the constant in 1900 in his accurate, accurate formulation of the distribution of radiation emitted by a black body, which is a perfect absorber of radiant energy. The... Um, and so this and so he ended up with black body radiation curve and in calculating that he had to assume there was a relationship between the energy of a photon and its frequency. Now this tool will be used as a new base unit and it will be and it will use the Kibble balance. The Kibble balance which is a complex piece of equipment which will measure the amount of electrical electrical current that's required to force a given mass a certain distance. Okay. So this is all going to be coming down very soon. And I just had to highlight this on the show because, well, I love physics. physics. It is physics. So now let's talk about what uh, IBM has recently done with Mm -hmm. with Red Hat. So IBM bought Red Hat, which is an uh, an open source uh, Linux distribution, or they call it a distro, and Red Hat, they bought it for $34 billion because IBM wants to make open source the center of its cloud technology. And so this was a major, major purchase for IBM. It was, now, Red Hat was founded 25 years ago. It was based in North Carolina. It was valued at around uh, $20 billion the day before the purchase. Mm. And IBM gave them a 60 per, 60% premium. So it was valued at $20 billion and they bought it for $34 billion. Not bad. Not bad at all. Now, this all. is the third biggest tech deal in the history of the U.S., uh, according to CNBC. Microsoft just bought GitHub for $7.5 So there's a movement for these big, big companies to go into open source, particularly as it relates to cloud computing. So this is a sea change going on in the, in the area of software development. Listen, we love your emails. Email us at techtalk@stratford.edu, at stratford.edu. And also go out and check out the programs that Stratford University has. Go to www.stratford.edu. Check out those programs and tell them that you heard about those programs on Tech Talk Radio.
0: Tech Talk Radio is sponsored by Stratford University. For more information on courses at Stratford University, call 1-800-444-0804. Thanks for listening to Tech Talk Radio Online.